Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 206, The History of Ukraine and Its Relationship to Russia, Part 2. Last time, we went over the early history of Ukraine. Today, we begin anew, starting where we left off, in the first part of the 16th century. As before, my two primary resources are the books The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine by Serhei Plokhi, and Borderland, A Journey Through the History of Ukraine by Anna Reid. Of course, I will supplement it with my extensive library that I've gathered over the past 10 years. Before we dive in, I'd like to plug my Patreon version of the podcast. For either $3, $5, or $10 a month, you will get, at a minimum, two episodes a month, one on the 15th, the other on the 30th. You'll also have immediate access to a number of book reviews and previous episodes, like the two-part series on the Romanov children of Nicholas and Alexandra, one on Nicholas Ivan Ivanovich Vavilov and the Leningrad Steed Bank, along with ten others already in the library. Today's podcast world is a crowded one, with major companies diving in. Russian History Retold and Russian Rulers is an independent podcast, and any support you can give it will be much appreciated. Now, on to the history of Ukraine. As I mentioned last time, the yoke of the Golden Horde disintegrated by the 15th century, replaced by its successors, the Crimean, Kazan, and Astrakhan Khanates. Though each of these posed a threat to Russia, and more so to Ukraine and its people. Luckily for the people in the region, the three Khanates were, for the most part, at each other's throats. The Crimean successor most concerned the people of Ukraine as they became a vassal state of the mighty Ottoman Empire. They also had a charismatic leader, Haji Devlet Giray, who came to power in 1449 and established a dynasty that would last until 1783. The main economic driver of the Crimean Khanate was the slave trade, and its store was the land that was to become Ukraine. The people needed protection and would initially come from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. This came from the 1569 Union of Lublin. While many historians point out that this union would lead to a period of stability, quite a few point out that it would strain relations between what was to become Belarus, Ukraine, and Poland. There would be many uprisings against Polish rule. As Reed points out in Borderland, quote, Ukrainians, like the Irish, rebelled against their Polish landlords at every opportunity. Poles, like the English, responded with a curious mixture of affection, scorn, and fear. It is out of this relationship that we have the term Ruthingnins appear. It is the Polish name for the peoples of Ukraine and Belarus. It is also a time when we begin to see the delineation of the lands that would become Ukraine. In Russia, Ivan III would openly proclaim itself independent of the Horde in 1476. This led to his quote-unquote gathering of the lands, which was the beginning of the rapid and centuries-long expansion of the Tsardom of Muscovy. By the 1500s, its growth would take possession of Smolensk and Chernihiv, which is in today's Ukraine. They would also begin to join forces with a new protective group of Ukrainian people the Cossacks. This mutual relationship 
would ebb and flow over the centuries, and it revolved around their mutual religion, orthodoxy. The Poles and Lithuanians were predominantly Catholic, which led to tensions rising. The Tatar raids from Crimea into Ukraine were taking their toll as well. The Poles would protect the people in the western part of Ukraine and the Russians in the east. The Cossacks could do what they could to hold off the raiders in the south. By now, Ukraine's land was considered to be some of the most fertile in Eastern Europe. Serfs from Russia, fleeing the suppression they felt there, flooded the region. Jewish migration into the area increased from the mid-1500s into the 1600s. They would be squeezed by two opposing Christian religions, the Catholics and the Orthodox. As Polkvi puts it in the Gates of Europe, quote, By the mid-17th century, however, with many princes converting to Catholicism and Polish nobles pouring into the area, the Jews found themselves caught between the resentful Orthodox serfs and money-hungry Catholic masters. This was a ticking time bomb. This tension would be played out with the pogroms of the Tsars and culminate in the mass murders of Jews during the Nazi invasion of Ukraine, with many of the locals participating in the slaughter. We can trace the animosities to this period. So I've gone on a kind of a squirrel chase here, so I'm driving us back to where I wanted us to be, the development of the Cossack protectors. It is estimated that between 1500 and 1600, between 1.5 and 3 million people were sold in the Crimean slave markets. One Ukrainian female slave would become the most famous of all, Roxolana. She would become one of the wives of Suleiman the Magnificent. There are tales of a new group of men, bound and determined to save their people from captivity. Many of them were former serfs who would defend their freedom with great zeal. These Cossacks would raid Crimean territories and even into the Ottoman Empire to free the slaves. The term Cossack is one of Turkic origin from the word Kazak, or free men. They were small bands of people who would live in Ukraine's steppes around the Dnieper, Don, Volga, and Ural rivers where they would raid merchant caravans. We first hear of them in the historical record in 1492. It comes from a complaint lodged by the Crimean Khan sent to Grand Duke Alexander of Lithuania. He complained about the raids along the Dnieper. While the Grand Duke ordered an investigation, it had little effect. The term he used to talk of this borderland between his country and Crimea was Ukraine. Over the next 150 years, the Polish nobles were trying to convert the Cossacks and many new arrivals from Russia back into serfs. In addition, they were pushing Catholicism on the predominantly Orthodox peoples living in Ukraine. This tension would boil over beginning in 1648 with the Kemlinitsky Uprising, which would last until 1657, led by Hetman Bodan Kemlinitsky with the help at times from the Crimean Tatars. The uprising, which began as a peasant rebellion, would oust all Polish nobles from the country. Still, it would also devastate the Jewish population. While we have little strong evidence as to how many Jews were killed, a number of about 100,000 has been agreed upon by most historians. 
How many Ukrainians and Poles died is also up for debate. Some put the losses at an astounding 4 million, others at around 1 million total. To protect itself from further Polish intervention and to ally itself with their Orthodox brethren to the east, made an agreement with the Muscovites known as the Pereyaslav Agreement, signed in 1654. This would precipitate the Russo-Polish War of 1654 to 67. In 1686, the bond between Ukraine and Russia would become more substantial, with Russia being dominant with the signing of the Treaty of Perpetual Peace. This agreement would continue to hold until the first partition of Poland in 1772. The Treaty of Perpetual Peace would be one of the triggers for the upcoming Russo-Swedish War, one where Swedish King Charles XII would invade Russia. What this did is it allowed Russia to not worry about Poland anymore and look up north toward the Baltic and Sweden. It is also one where the left bank Ukraine, which included Zaporizhian Sich, cities of Chernihiv, Starodob, Smolensk, and its outskirts were given to Russia, while Poland retained the right bank of Ukraine. The Sich, where the Cossacks live, was eventually dissolved under Catherine the Great's reign in 1775. Now under the control and protection of Russia, there was a lessening of the threat of invasion from the Ottomans and the Tatar allies. This precipitated the 11 Russo-Turkish Wars, which began in 1568 and ended in 1878. They were embroiled in further action between each other from 1914 to 1918 within the context of World War I. In the late 1700s, the extreme western part of Ukraine was now being held by the Austrians, with the south-central being held by the Ottomans, the rest being in Russian Empire's hands. Over the coming years, the Turks' hold in the south would wane, and the Russians' grip would tighten. By the end of the reign of Paul I, Ukraine was no longer being protected, excuse me, it was being controlled. Beginning with the reign of Peter the Great, the policy of Russification of Ukraine was spreading. Each subsequent czar would strengthen the policy, most notably under Nicholas I and Alexander III. Internally, there were numerous uprisings over the years by the Cossacks and other Ukrainians. I'd covered two of these uprisings in the past, the first one being led by Stenka Razin, beginning in 1667. The larger one, started in 1773, was led by Yemelyan Pugachev. Beginning in the mid-18th century, the Ukrainian National Revival started a movement to realize a true Ukrainian identity as a nation, as a people, as a culture. Try as they did, first the Tsarist regime, then the Bolsheviks tried to stamp this nationalistic effort. While the Tsar was pretty brutal, they were way easier on Ukrainians than the Soviets were, especially under Stalin. Before the onset of World War I, Many Ukrainian intellectuals fled the Russian-held eastern part of the country to the west, which was being held by the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. However, when the war started, many of them were rounded up and put into the brutal Thalerhof internment camp. This concentration camp would see thousands die, mostly citizens of the Russian Empire, mostly Ukrainian. An example of the horrible conditions with the 
lack of barracks. Prisoners slept outdoors, even in the winter. It is estimated that over 20,000 died at Thalerhof. With the collapse of the Romanov dynasty and the rise of the Bolsheviks, many in Ukraine yearned for freedom from repression. As noted Canadian historian Arrest Subtelny writes, quote, In 1919, total chaos engulfed Ukraine. Indeed, in the modern history of Europe, no country experienced such complete anarchy, bitter strife, and total collapse of authority as did Ukraine at this time. Six different armies, those of the Ukrainians, the Bolsheviks, the Whites, the Entente, the French, the Poles, and the anarchists operated on its territory. Kiev changed hands five times in less than a year. Cities and regions were cut off from each other by the numerous fronts. Communications with the outside world broke down almost completely. The starving cities emptied as people moved into the countryside in their search for food. After the Russian Civil War and Lenin's death, Stalin would do everything in his power to crush any nationalistic fervor in Ukraine. One of his methods was the onset of the Soviet famine of 1932-33, known as the Holodomor. Millions of Soviet citizens would die, with the vast majority being Ukrainian. The coming invasion of the Soviet Union by the Nazis in 1941 would devastate Ukraine. Over 1.5 million Jewish Ukrainians would perish at the hands of the Nazis, with many collaborators aiding in the slaughter. While at first, many Ukrainians viewed the Nazis as liberators from the grasp of the Soviets, but it became apparent early on that the Germans were no better. Many would take up arms against the Wehrmacht, but Stalin would not forget that many rose up against his army. Much of the war was fought in Ukraine, destroying cities, killing millions, and wiping out whole farming communities. After the death of Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev in 1954 returned the Crimea to the Ukraine SSR, something that Vladimir Putin's government would annex in 2014, just 60 years later. No history of Ukraine can be told without mentioning an event that occurred in 1986 the nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl. The disaster caused over 100,000 people to evacuate their homes, with the majority coming from the city of Pripyat. The total cost of the cleanup would be estimated in today's dollars at about $68 billion. The loss of life has been estimated to be between four to 16,000 people when you include those affected in Eastern and Western Europe. Some have claimed that the disaster at Chernobyl was the final spike in the heart of the Soviet Union. It uncovered corruption and the lack of any ability to govern effectively. Ukraine officially declared itself an independent country on the 24th of August, 1991, separating itself from the collapsing USSR. In December of that year, the first presidential election was held, and the people selected Leonid Kravchuk. Unfortunately, the economy, like much of the now-fractured Soviet Union, performed poorly. The following administrations led by Leonid Kuchma, Viktor Yushchenko, Viktor Yanukovych, Alexander Turchnayev, Petro Poroshenko, and today's leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, have all met with their own set of problems. But that is the stuff of current events. 
Before we close out our history of Ukraine, I'd like to review it through a timeline chronology. We begin in the mid-800s, where the Scandinavians came in and established a trade route along the Dnieper. In 1240, we have the Mongol army under Batu Khan capturing and devastating Kiev. 1362, the Lithuanian army under Grand Duke Algirdas captured Kiev. And one year later, the Lithuanian victory of the Mongols at the Battle of the Blue Waters frees much of this area. In the early 1400s, we begin to see the first Cossack outposts being established. In 1553, the, the Zaporozhian Sich was founded. In 1569, as we mentioned before, we have the Union of Lublin, which created the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. In 1648, the Kamlenitsky Rebellion begins. Six years later, we have the Treaty of Pereyaslav, where Kamlenitsky accepted Russian protection. From 1657 through 1686, we have a period called the Ruin. It's a war between Russia, Poland, Turks, Cossacks for control of Ukraine as they went back and forth. At the end, the eternal peace between Russia and Poland hands Kiev and Cossack lands east of the Dnieper over to Russian rule. Ivan Mezba was appointed hetman of Russian-ruled Ukraine in 1687, and then in 1708, the Swedish army under Charles XII entered and invaded Ukraine. Mazepa declared support for Charles. And in 1709, we have the Battle of Poltava. The Swedes and the Cossacks were defeated by Peter the Great. In 1775, we have Catherine the Great destroying the Zaporozhian Sich. In 1783, she annexed Crimea. And 12 years later, in 1795, we have the third and final partition of Poland. In 1876, we have the Edict of Ems, which bans all Ukrainian language publishing and teaching in the Russian Empire. Remember how we talked about this Russification process. Here's where it really gets deep. In uh, 1905, Nicholas II makes democratic concessions and... Because of mass strikes and demonstrations all through Ukraine. Then pogroms in Kiev, Odessa, Kherson, Nikolaev begin. So we have in January of 1918, we have the Russian Civil War, the Soviet Civil War happening, and the Red Army captures Kiev. Rada proclaims Ukrainian independence and flees. We have in March 1918, the Treaty of Brest Litovsk where the German army now occupies Kiev. By 1929 to 1933, we have the de and collectivization programs going on. This is when up to 12 million so-called kulaks were deported from Ukraine. Also in 32 to 33, we have up to 5 million peasants dying of starvation in Soviet Ukraine. Then we have the great purges in the Soviet Union in 37 through 39. Up to 1 million Soviets executed and up to 12 million sent to camps known as the gulags. In 1944, Crimean Tatars were mass put together 
and deported. In 54, again, we have Khrushchev handing Crimea to the Ukrainian SSR. This is after getting rid of so many of the Crimean Tatars. Uh, in 86, of course, we have Chernobyl exploding. So, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm really sorry for the long time between this one and the previous show. Of course, if you want to hear more about Russia's history, please support the podcast by going over to patreon.com slash Rulers. For as little as $3 a month, you can get two episodes at least, at a minimum, and have access to all 18 already existing shows. So until next time, das vidanya y spasiba borshoya.